Raymond Besant is a wildlife cameraman and photographer from the Orkney Islands in Scotland. He regularly films as a long lens cameraman for both the BBC and National Geographic in far-reaching locations such as Arctic Norway, Gabon and the Tibetan Plateau. In this conversation, we spoke about Raymond's experience out in the field with animals and the quiet, still, sometimes unnerving quality of the landscape that opportunes the difference between simply looking and truly seeing. The paying attention that is essential to his craft. We spoke about the rare and precious moments of connection with an animal of the respect, honour and privilege of having an animal settle in your presence enough to groom themselves. In one case, a wolf, mere metres away on the high Tibetan plateau. We also spoke about the essential nature of guidance in the field, of experienced trackers and the research of and collaboration with scientists as together a team seeks to bring the vis visceral behaviour of an animal body in its ecosystem to a wider audience through the engaging immediacy of film. Most recently, this way of working has found its voice in Raymond's collaboration with Project Seagrass in filming seagrass meadows of the Orkneys and the information of both visual beauty and data that might assist policymakers in preserving managing and encouraging these meadows in the face of development, agriculture, wind turbines and salmon farms. Please join us as we dive in. So Raymond, you wrote something that was of interest to me on your Instagram about your um, experience of filming wild Scandinavia. And what you wrote was Arctic Norway was my kind of place, beautifully bleak with a subdued palette, but the birds I was assigned to film were definitely not subdued. And I wanted to ask you about what was it about this subdued palette that's important in terms of filmmaking, but also in terms of still photography and indeed whether the subdued palette changes your experience of the place and yourself filming that place gosh um i think i think because where i live uh in the orkney islands uh off the north coast of scotland it's um like like now it's it's still dark outside um so it's what 10 past eight in the morning uh, so the light's only just starting to kind of appear, uh, but it's it's been really stormy this last week, so uh, I might not even get that light today. So I think I'm quite used to a palette that's um, subdued for actually quite a long part of the year, mm. um, and I, and I think you learn to uh, whether you do it consciously or not. I don't know. You kind of um, kind of make the most of it just in terms of uh well i guess kind of going off on a tangent you know like the when we share images these days um you know it's 
it's on social media generally mm. uh, unless you're fortunate enough to have a book deal or, or something like that so um and generally those sites are just like a, a riot of color most of the time yeah and i think pe- people kind of get sucked into like certain avenues where you know everything's big and, and bold and actually i've always been drawn to kind of less if you like so yeah. uh enjoy picking out elements in the landscape um lots of space um things like that so so when i went to norway um it was really the very northern edge of of norway so uh so from a a purely geographical and physical point of view you already feel like you're on the edge yes so um yeah and it was just uh i quite like the the contrast of this uh on a kind of landscape scale uh view quite a uh i guess it's the the tundra really so yep. um and patches of snow and mm-hmm. and whatnot so um yeah so on a wider scale quite a uh again subdued palette but then these these birds that i was there to to film the roughs you know are just the complete opposite really flamboyant um you know these amazing feathers and colors and mm. um so so immediately there was like an interest there in the, in the kind of um but your contrast, contrast. Yeah. yeah in color and in movement mm. yeah there's so much stillness i've been to the high norwegian tundra myself um long time ago now back in 83 but yeah it's that spacious stillness that's like suspended mm. Mm. yeah and I, I had something the other day actually that I it reminded me slightly of the, the tundra but I was um there's one of the islands here it's a, really it's the, the only hilly island it's um more like the Scottish islands than it is the rest of Orkney but um and it's still moorland and hills and things and uh we had some snow for a change. We don't often get that much snow here, but um, and I was trying to photograph um, mountain hare, and um, I was. It was one of those days where it was like squally showers coming through every twenty minutes, quite brutal, and then quite nice, and then you could see the weather coming. But um, yeah, I'd I'd gone up the hill and I'd seen this hare, and then I just I kind of stopped. And uh, this shower went past and then I felt really weird. Like I'd never really experienced it before. It was kind of like something fell off. Like I described it recently as like a a strangeness in the landscape. And um, I couldn't really figure out what it was. And then it kind of clicked like it was because the shower had passed. The wind had gone from like 40 mile an hour to, to nothing. So it was just totally calm, but really quiet as well. Like there was no, I couldn't hear any cars or vehicles or, and it was kind of unnerving to be like, so just completely quiet and still and Mm -hmm. uh, just for five minutes. And then the wind got up again and it kind of broke the spell, if you like. And um, and it was not entirely like that in the tundra, but it it kind of took me back there for, for a minute. Mm, I think that sort of space opens up a lot of creative potential because you have this possibility of listening, really listening to um, what wants to come forward from the landscape or from 
the animals. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think um, there's a, a Scottish nature writer that I uh, that I like a lot, Jim Crumley, and he he often speaks about that very thing and just um, kind of like the the difference between seeing and looking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and hearing. And it, yeah, and paying attention and. Uh, and that actually takes a bit of work sometimes as well, you know, and and he speaks about um he's into eagles in a big way and um and he he talks about having to look into the middle distance mm. in order to see golden eagles in the hills that you're scanning and scanning and everything and, and but it's more than just physically looking, you know, it's um it's harder to do that as well, because you're you have to concentrate on a space that you would necessarily just kind of uh, kind of scan over. But I I liked his idea that uh, you know you have to look look somewhere else. It was, yeah, it was nice. it's like looking between the lines, or yeah, yeah. What the Aboriginal people here might say is like really, they call it dadidi, which is deep listening. So it's like really listening for that space in between everything where everything really happens. But you don't mm. notice it if you're busy with the colours or busy with the movement. And um, sorry, my my dog's gotten hold of a squeaky squeaky I, toy. If you can hear, can't hear it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just joining in with the conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm, the the ecosystem that I walk is is very similar. It's a bay and it's it's an uh, estuary and a wetland and it's a lot of even though it's fringed by mangroves it's a lot of just space just light and um as you may or may not know from looking at my ig be- beloved to me is seagrass and that's where i want to go next is you have an exhibition at the moment in Kaikou, um on your seagrass images and i think you made those in 22 is that right those images um yeah I think I had some before uh-huh. uh that just when I started to kind of kind of become aware of seagrass I guess yeah, um, yeah. and then and that's, yeah that's what I wanted to ask you about how did you become aware of seagrass what drew your interest to um immerse in that landscape or seascape and photograph that being um I think uh, I don't know if you know, but Orkney's a, a bit of a scuba diving mecca. Oh, I didn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually, uh, I was diving in uh, New South Wales about, gosh, must be 20 years ago, maybe, uh, out at Broughton Island. I don't know if you know where that is. Um, New South I'm Wales. I'm way back now. Here in Australia. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, I think you go to uh, what's north of Newcastle, actually. I think. Okay. Yep, I know the area. Uh, can't remember. Anyway, it was. Um, I remember speaking to a guy there, and um, on the way out to the the dive site, and uh, I mentioned Orkney, and he was like, "Why would you want to dive in like water that's that cold?" Mm. But weirdly, it actually reminded me a lot of Orkney because it's. That kind of temperate environment, not uh, yes. coral reefs. So, Correct. Uh, so actually, lots of the seaweed and things just looked very similar. So, um, but um, 
but people generally don't dive in seagrass here. It's all wrecks from the First World War German uh, fleet that was uh, scuttled here. So uh, lots of kind of deep, dark technical diving, all that kind of stuff. Um, I've done that kind of diving, but I'm not really, I'm somebody that's as happy in like three meters of water where I can just, you know, look for things. Um, and I, was a, a friend of mine had, had been snorkeling in seagrass and um, just thought it looked like a really amazing play. I didn't know anything about it. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, started to, <clears throat> excuse me, started to go in, have a look. It's, um, likes essentially the same kind of environment that uh, it likes with you, you know, shallow mm-hmm. shallow sheltered bays mm-hmm. um so easy to easy to go and uh, swim in so um but again in in some ways it's quite a challenge too you know it's um because it's in more shallow sheltered waters it's not the visibility is often not that good yes um so quite a frustrating place to, to take photographs uh you know sometimes I'll, I'll go in and actually not take any pictures because it's just not mm. um not really what I'm after but I think you know if you've been doing it long enough you can learn I don't like to use the word failures but the some experiences just don't work the way that you mm-hmm. that you want and that's okay too you know that's all part of it so um so yeah, and, and then it was, um, I found out that there was a, a project that was uh, kind of already taken place, actually, just called Project Seagrass. Yes, I know. Um, so they were doing a collaboration with Harriet Watt University, who are, uh, have a base here for marine science. Um, because I don't think, um, and they're still in the process of it as well, where people knew there was seagrass here, but not to what extent mm-hmm. um and actually i think the the guy rj who's now actually just left project seagrass um kind of describes it as the, the jewel in the crown of uk seagrass where you know it's still intact here the um it's in good condition or better condition than anywhere else in the in the uk so so i think where there's the kind of practical side of things where um Again, like everywhere else in the world, there's uh, development here in terms of mm. wind turbines and salmon farms and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, the more data that we can have in terms of being able to to map it and find it and map it uh, and then be able to provide that information to kind of policymakers is mm. really important. But then I think, I mean, I, I did a science degree, uh, yeah, but, didn't, but didn't enjoy it uh at all so so for me it's it's kind of perfect really to have a collaboration with a kind of scientific project that i can use the images to then hopefully kind of pique people's interest in and uh and make them interested in what's on their doorstep really or our doorstep it's such a beautiful organism the viridian of it you know how mm. lush it is it's a, a being of great beauty to me and um, the field that I get when I uh, walk with it I I don't I snorkel but I don't scuba dive is um, this incredible effulgent generosity of this being 
and you know you know about the carbon sequestration mm. and yeah its role there yeah and what's so phenomenal about it is how much it contributes to carbon sequestration and you know it grows almost everywhere except for the polar regions unlike its sisters mangroves that are just tropical mm. sometimes subtropical but you know it's it's kind of i think of it or i feel like it is part of the lymphatic system of earth yeah i think um there's probably not on the same scale as you would find in australia but they're quite big meadows here mm. uh, but also kind of uh kind of smaller patches as well i guess and you, you often find it in um um it's called merrill which is a uh i think it's a calcified seaweed so it almost looks like coral it's mm-hmm. small it's kind of pinky kind of color um and you often find patches of seagrass growing, growing in that as well so it's um yeah i think when when you're floating above seagrass even if the visibility is bad <clears throat> actually sometimes it's it's nicer when the visibility isn't so good but the sun's out yes because the the rays kind of enhance this kind of uh softness i think yeah yeah i've um, seen that in your images yeah uh, and actually really uh relaxing when you're when you're in there mm. um because even even for us um you know the water's fairly warm in the uh kind of august september time it might be you'll laugh now like 14 degrees um, okay so, yeah. it, so when you got a wetsuit on uh that's that's fine uh what was kind of disturbing last year was that the water was really warm mm, yeah. uh so uh, it was actually in one of the sites I, it was the first time i ever got out because it was too warm mm. um and i think really the water somebody tested it was 18 or 19 degrees you know which for us is um a lot yes so um you know we weren't immune from the these marine heat waves that were that seem to be popping up everywhere. It's bad. It's bad. When I went for a walk on the weekend, I just thought this feels really hot. I got home. I looked it up. It's twenty-eight degrees. It's like, are you joking? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get well, a lot I... of epiphyte growth as well, because um, yeah, we get a lot of runoff here too. It's quite close mm. to the Brisbane Airport where I walk. And do you have many epiphytes where you we are? Do you have a problem with that? Uh, I mean, Orton is very agricultural mm. um so you know there is runoff uh from from the land um we don't tend to i mean we'll get algal blooms and things like that um but i'd say the the water quality here is good um not to say that there's, there's, it's not without its its problems but um yeah, yeah. I think generally it's generally it's good. Mm, yeah. I just see a lot of die off in the seagrass when there is an epiphyte overgrowth because mm. of um increased sediment or increased uh nutrients, you know, from the mm. runoff. Yeah. And of course then that yeah, if it kills the seagrass, it can't photosynthesize and Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think when um certainly when the sun's out, you know, it's it's a very um easy kind of uh 
A to B, if you like, when you're swimming through it, you can see the oxygen. Yes, the coming bubbles out, coming out. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah, uh, you know, and you, you obviously can't see plants, you know, on land. But you can't see them photosynthesize. I mean, yeah, you can see yeah. the, resu- the results of it, but um, you know, to swim through it and all these bubbles coming up is. Uh, yeah, my ex-husband filmed that, and he's like, "I can't believe this! Look at it! It's just going." Yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah, it's quite affirming. <laughs> yes, it is. So tell us about this exhibition, Raymond, where it is and when it's on till and how people can find out more and if they're in the location, guys see it or whether there's an aspect of it that's online. Uh, so it's in uh, it's in the Highland Park shop in Kirkwall. Uh, so as in Highland Park Whiskey. Yep. Um, so they... They part fund some of the Project Seagrass uh, research. Um, so actually, it was a it was a very easy kind of. Uh, uh, I mean, before I was a wildlife filmmaker, I was a, a press photographer. Yes. And very much into people photography and things, and um, and liked to exhibit. But it was it's not just a case of you know going to a gallery. Uh, will you exhibit my work? You know, it's like often difficult so but in this case it was very much oh yeah well that's perfect for us you know we part fund this there's a space in the in the shop just do it whenever you want really so um yeah so it's on until 2nd of march mm-hmm. um so yeah actually that's yeah another month from today yeah uh and then people can just go to my uh, instagram site and see some of the images on there and there's yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I'll put some of that information in the show notes too so people can find it easily. Mm. Um, yeah. So we'll take a short break now and then um, come back and ask you a few more hmm, philosophical type questions. Great. Okay. Okay. So, Raymond, I'm really interested to open out with you what your actual experience is in an ecosystem and with the wildlife that you film. You know, it's, as as I've said to you in in conversation, it's so easy when you're working with BBC or Nat Geo to get um, really enthralled and really responsible for, for all of the technical side of it and you know, to be really specific and precise and granular about the whole process. But I'm really interested in what your experience is in your own self and in your own body when you're in an ecosystem, when you're in a relational field with an animal. um, And usually, I guess it is an animal, even though seagrass is not an animal, for example. What, What that is for you, what that conversation is for you between that one or multiple that you're filming? Um, I think it's complicated. <laughs> um, you're right. I think there's, um, you can kind of compartmentalize it. I think the there's very much the pressure of, um, or I'm very much aware of the pressure that, uh, that comes with, uh, I guess you might call it kind of high-end filming, uh, you know, things that 
series that people enjoy and millions of people watch. Um, so yeah, there's the technical side of things where, um, you know, you hope everything works. Um, there's, there's always things always go wrong with cameras and, and it might be something as simple as um, just a cable, you know, that's playing up something like that. So um so there's the technical side of things there's then the often you know you're dealing with quite not extreme weather conditions but challenging weather conditions mm -hmm. you know that can then impact on again your camera gear um so i guess part of my brain's just dealing with the you know trying to be creative in terms of shots and things like that but actually just getting the shots um you know sometimes uh because i tend to do um on what's known as a long lens cameraman or camera person so um the nice part of that for me is that it's i'm essentially being employed to try and uh build a behavioral sequence ah. so yeah um so not only am I trying to get the shots that I'm always almost thinking ahead to the edit rather than what I'm actually filming mm -hmm. or not what I'm actually filming, but the, I know that, you know, um, I can't give an editor 200 shots where the animal's just like mid frame, you know, you've got to be thinking about the animal in the wider context of its environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, those up shots that, um, Close-up shots really help editors because they're like a, a segue between parts of behavior. You know, if you see like uh, a bird do that or something, you know, it's 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 easy to cut to that and then to cut back to a wide. So, you know, if you've just got lots of the same kind of shots, they can't do anything with it. Yes. But the challenge for me is knowing when to do those shots and when to stay wide and all that kind of thing. So, um, so actually those moments where you can have some kind of connection with an animal or feel like you are yes, yes. are actually quite few and far between. Um, um, and again, I was speaking to somebody about this the other day that actually, you know, my, my first interest uh, or my main interest is, is wildlife. Yeah. You know, it's like, I love taking pictures and I love filming, but actually if I couldn't do that anymore for whatever reason, and I could still go bird watching or diving or whatever, that's cool. I'd be happy with that. Uh -huh. okay. um, I probably get frustrated with a lack of creative outlet or whatever, but um, yeah, so I, I think there's the uh, the kind of physical pressures on your body sometimes, you know, just being in, you know, I'm going, I'm grey now, but I was ginger before, so actually the the, the heat is an issue for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I very much like colder places, although you know I filmed quite a bit in Africa, so it's um, yeah, so that, that side of things is Sri Lanka. Is yeah yeah uh so yeah the heat and humidity is always a bit of a uh a challenge so um yeah just looking after yourself as well yes um, yes that and, would be vital yeah yeah and certainly in scotland i often work by myself um whereas on a lot of those other shoots you know you're part of a team it might just be a small team um so you've got to you know, you've got to be able to work with other people, uh, which I don't find difficult, but I think the um, my preference would be to work alone. Mm, yeah. Um, 
because I think then you don't have to explain why you're doing certain shots the whole time. Yes. Yeah. Um, and actually, one of the really nice things I think, um, and you kind of find your way. It's quite a small industry. Um, everything tends to come out of uh, Bristol uh, in England, so they, you know, at some point you've you've generally worked for all the different production companies, mm-hmm. um, and I think um, you kind of learn. I think through the years that uh, you know, I had a shoot last year where <clears throat> myself and the guide were just left to get on with it, you know, and you just fed back your information at the end of each day or whatever. And it felt really nice to be, to felt or to feel trusted, mm, mm. you know, that you could do the work and you were working hard and you were making the most of every opportunity rather than, you know, having a producer on your shoulder saying, can you get a closer shot? Can you get a closer shot? You know, yeah. Yeah. But this whole process, what I'm hearing between the lines is you have to have a, a thorough understanding of the animal's behavior because if you're going to anticipate or try and think ahead for the editor, then you need to have some understanding of how that animal inhabits its space. Yeah, and I think you, you rely heavily on guides. Um, so, and scientists actually, I mean, most of the stories come from, because everybody's always looking for something new. You know, there's there's only so many, excuse me, I think you can, you know, when the next, whatever it is, number two or three comes out, um, generally that's been commissioned because people like it and the you know mm. the chances of success i guess are are high yeah um but often it's just a recycling of the same mm. types of programs yeah yeah um so producers are always looking for something new and that those new stories tend to come from people or from scientists that are working on something okay or or researchers so uh starts with them then Again, they're generally working with a guide in that country or whoever the experts are or people in the community that are aware of those animals or, or whatever. So mm. um, so for um, you rely on them and you also, again, there's a tendency to want to push, I think, to get shots when actually, you know, the person sitting next to you that's driving the vehicle <clears throat> lives there and they know the animal and they know the landscape and they know... If, the light's going to go behind the hill at that time of the day. So, you know, it pays to listen. They're like your actually... translator in a way. They're, trans- they're translating yeah. the animal in the ecosystem. Yeah. And actually, it's one of the nicest things about going on those shoots, I think, is, is learning from people that, you know, know much more about something than than you do. Like if I get a, a call and say, oh, we want you to film forest elephants in Gabon, it's like, cool. But, you know, I don't know anything about them. I don't know anything about that. So does that mean you have to research them, Raymond, or do you just rely when you are in the field on the guides? Um, yeah, I mean, I research a little bit, um, and you'll watch like previous films, and mm-hmm. um, I, again, almost the first kind of question is, how close am I going to be able to get to this animal? So, things often are completely different on the ground. Mm. Uh, compared to what you've been given as your, uh, you know, your treatment or your um, your short list or whatever. Um, mm. I mean, I again, forest elephants. So um, 
I was on a shoot in Gabon, uh, Secrets of the Elephants, call, it was called, for National Geographic. Um, and the idea initially was, um, well, they, it, it's almost like a, it's lots of rainforest next to the, the sea, but there's also savanna there as well. So it, it's almost like uh, some of it's, I guess, kind of early rainforest. So the, that savanna would eventually become rainforest. But the the elephants there like to eat. Um, it's related to celery, but it doesn't look like celery. It's like a kind of like a vine almost that's um, that grows on the edge of the uh, the sand or the edge of the beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they like to eat this stuff, but they have to come out of the forest in order to to do it. So the idea was that we would have a, a kind of gimbal system on yeah. the the vehicles that the uh, the guides and the trackers use, <clears throat> and then we would film as they move, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, it was immediately apparent when we came across the first group of elephants that they hate those vehicles. Um, they're they're kind of like glorified quad bikes. They're called a Polaris, I think, okay. and they're they're really noisy because they're designed to cope with. Uh, uh, I guess it's that kind of torque yeah. to get them through the sand and everything. Yeah. I... So um, so the elephants don't run off, but they always keep a certain distance. Mm. Um. So, you know, you've done all this research, or somebody else has done all this research and planning and everything. And then you get there and find, oh, actually, we can't do any of that. And then it's like, well, why don't we just like get a bit closer in the vehicle? And it's like, oh, no, got to stay on the track, you know, which is actually a very good thing, you know, so you're not degrading the the environment. But um, it's like, well, how are we going to film these elephants then? You know, so. And then the guy said, well, we just do it on foot. Yes, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So tripod on the shoulder yeah um so then that's that's immediately you kind of hand everything over to or your safety over to somebody that you know you don't know you know you don't know whether like they're happy to push things to the point where it's risky yeah um but actually they you know you didn't need to worry at all it was you know they they obviously knew about the Elephant's eyesight's not that good, so you can actually get quite close as long as you work with the the wind. Mm, that's um, going to be upwind. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they would, you know, they're taking that that into account all the time. And then, you know, if they think it's too close, then obviously you just you try to move away and everything. And actually, it worked really well. Um, actually, you have to so, be yeah. downwind. Is it downwind or upwind? Uh, yeah. Well, you need your. You need You're to be, sent to be taken away. So yeah, so you need to be uh, downwind, not upwind. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that that's wrong. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess all of this plays out with any animal, whether it's orcas or whether it's reindeer or wherever it is. It's yeah. I think um, scenario. I think try to think of some instances where I I did have what I felt like was a a moment, if you like. Uh, Actually, actually, I'll show you it. So I've got it up on the wall here. It's uh, I don't know if. Oh yes, yeah. See that wolf there? Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So that um, I was filming on the Tibetan plateau. Uh, 
very difficult shoot, um, mostly for people reasons rather than wildlife reasons, but um, lots of, uh, well, I mean, I'm happy to say it's Tibet, but you're not allowed to say it's Tibet when you're yeah. when you're there. Yeah. Um, and best just not to, in order to just kind of get on with people. But um, but the um, yeah, we were there essentially to film uh, an antelope migration, mm-hmm. where um, Cheru, uh, it's quite a identical looking animal. You know, it's like a if you can imagine, like probably. Most boring antelope you've ever seen. <laughs> it's got <laughs> beige, medium-sized deer uh, antelope. Sorry, um, no distinguishing features really. Uh, but in saying that, the, as is often the way in the natural world, the males are really spectacular looking. You know, they've got these um, uh, huge uh, antlers and um, beautiful. Uh, Pelage, so it's um, but you you don't see them um, at the time of year that that we were there. So these cheru come out of the mountains down onto this plateau next to this lake, and generally all give birth within the space of two weeks. Um, but um, wolves know that they do this, and they they track them all the way. So the idea really was to try and film a predation sequence where the um, wolf would take the 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 youngsters and actually they didn't I'd, I'd say hunting's quite a uh what's the word uh probably given them more credit than was due because actually in the first day of birth you know they could just walk along and actually they they were just there and they could just pick them up yes. um but you could see within within a couple of days that actually these young ones could outrun a wolf no problem so um so it gets progressively harder for the wolves as the the birthing season kind of progresses. So, um, but we we had seen wolf in a few different locations, <clears throat> and um, they very obviously knew that we were there, mm. and would always keep that certain distance that you know it's their boundary, I guess. Mm. Um, but one day in the hide, um, I heard just a, a crackle on the on the radio, and um, couldn't really hear what it was and I looked up and that wolf was up in the, the ridge <clears throat> maybe a hundred meters away uh-huh. and um and just started coming towards the hide and just coming and coming and coming mm-hmm. and eventually sat down like eight meters in front of the, the hide and it knew I was in there like it was it was doing this uh-huh. and uh it was nerve wracking yes. but but not in a, I wasn't frightened. Like, okay. it's interesting, a lot, you get asked this the whole time, like if you do talks and things, it's like, did, did you ever feel under any threat from an animal? Mm. And I, I always think it's such an odd question mm. because it's, uh, animals generally want nothing to do with us. Yeah. You know, unless, I always think it's it's very much on their terms. Like I, um, you know, when you're filming the, the temptation is to to chase an animal mm. or to to keep pushing it to if you haven't got your shots you're know, like well if i just you know and actually it's the worst thing you can do you know like 
there's a reason that you sit in a hide for 10 hours a day is to allow things to come to you yes yes so I think that's part of the pleasure in it for me is if even if I'm not in a hide you know if I've done my field craft work uh, field work correctly you know if I've got an otter that's close in front of me and it's feeding or it's grooming or whatever I know that it doesn't know I'm there so it's that kind of I don't feel like I'm I'm fooling an animal necessarily. Yeah, it, it, it's yeah. more the kind of respect aspect, I suppose. Exactly, exactly. Respect, and it's not violating that animal's space or integrity or natural behaviour or mm. yeah. Presence. So to have that that wolf come up that close, uh, and then actually, you know, uh, sit down and actually just start licking itself. You know, it was slightly comical as well but it was um for me really a sense of elation yes um such an honor yeah exactly yeah I mean I I did a little piece to camera and like I'm not like ashamed to say that I actually cried when you know when it walked off and I think it was just like a kind of um I guess just like a release of emotion but I think the when I went back to the camp and told everybody about it, it was interesting that some of the people said, oh, what a stupid wolf. You know, it's like, it's putting itself in danger. And it's like, it's not stupid at all. It's like the complete opposite. It's it's seen something strange in its environment and it's gone to check out what it is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so. And then it realizes it's safe and it feels comfortable and it, able to inhabit itself naturally in its own ecosystem yeah yeah that's a relational field that's profound yeah yeah and it's those moments are quite rare i think where because you actually you don't get the space for yourself on those shoots necessarily in order for those Mm -hmm. uh things to present themselves or um Mm -hmm. yeah i think the again um in some ways it's the filming wildlife in those for those productions is almost the the opposite of how or what I enjoy about watching wildlife. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So you know it's, it's results driven. Yeah. And it's um I'd be slightly careful because it, it you know it's given me the opportunity to go to places that I would necessarily have never gone to. Or would have been much harder. So, like, you know, last year again, I was in the rainforest in in Africa, and um, you know, you have to kind of like take yourself away from the the pressure to enjoy it too. You know, it's um, so I, again, it's this kind of how can I find some headspace for myself to enjoy this yeah, and it's, it's to take meaning from it. Yeah, it's. I think that's crucial because in many ways also what I'm hearing between the lines here is you're a translator in the same way that the guides were a translator for you to make the film, you're a translator for the people who view the film. So it's what we're witnessing through your lens is your experience of that, of yourself really in that ecosystem. Uh, an old colleague of mine said I, I used to be a, a performer a dance performer and she used to say performers are like the shamans of our society they bear witness to that connection with 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 source with spirit and so 
like yourself, sometimes if I was um, tasked with performing something, then, you know, there's a responsibility to deliver. And so I could go out there with an attitude of I've got a job to do, I've got to deliver, but that actually won't get the job done for me in the sense that if I'm not connected with myself, then we all may as well leave the theatre and go home because it's not going to happen. And yet what a filmmaker does is exactly the same thing. We rely on your connection with yourself in that place, with that animal, for us to have that experience, for you to, it's like a transmission, for you to transmit Mm. that to us through film or through a still image so that we remember who we actually really are. Boom, then it happens. Yeah, I think the... Again, I kind of feel like I'm harping on about process, but it's, um, I think the, not all productions, but certainly I think the, the BBC particularly, I think, you know, has to, you know, they get caught out with anything or like there's, they're kind of held to a higher standard, I think, um, you know, being a public broadcaster, it's public money. Um, so any little thing that they do is, is scrutinised in terms of fault. But I think generally the stuff that I've, um, or the sequences that I've filmed for them, I'm, I know that, um, you know, I've filmed it and I've seen it. and um, But then when the editor gets it, you know, they could do anything with it. True. And actually change uh you know did this actually happen um you know so for me certainly the bbc and again the the rough is a good example where uh up in norway where we had a um we knew what the behavior was that we wanted to try and film so the you know the satellite male bird that's like hanging around the edges of the kind of main event and then sneaks in to to mate with the the female so Mm. Um, so we got those shots and that's how the story was told, you know, so Mm. it was, this is what this bird does, try and film it and then craft it in such a way that's true to the behavior of the bird. Yeah. 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 You can still be artistic within that that process. Um, but, um, you know, I think it tends to happen more at the research phase where I think um, you know people would like things to happen and then if it doesn't happen the question's sometimes asked well we could use that shot to display that bit of behaviour even though it didn't happen but I mm. rally against that you know it's mm. it's not um, I mean you you can do it and still be uh, genuine I think like it's it's the kind of disingenuous part I think with the you know if something didn't happen and you said it did yeah um, yeah but I don't think it doesn't it probably happened more in the past I think with certain certain shows and you know the kind of boom 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 kind of thing whereas um whereas I've, I've always been drawn to that kind of slower um more tra- traditional one hour kind of special if you like where the um where the storytelling is really important yeah storytelling is crucial 
which takes me to my last question for you is how did you move from or what motivated you to move from photojournalism and photographing people to being in the wild? Um, I think I think it had always been there in the back of my mind. Um, I mean, I, I grew up uh, a kid of the 80s, I suppose, where... Um, where a few things were important to me, so Star Wars, football, and and bird watching. Yeah. Uh, but like, bird watching in the eighties was not cool, you know. Certainly for a kid, you know. <laughs> so, <clears throat> you know, after school, I would um, get on my BMX and cycle to the nearest beach so that I could count wading birds. You know, it's kind of um, okay. so. So I've always loved being outside and watching birds and animals. Um, but I think at that time, the idea of being a, a wildlife filmmaker was something that was unachievable and like way over there. You know, it's like, how how could I ever do that? Yeah. Um, and I think, so I was kind of naturally drawn to initially just taking pictures of birds so that I, re I could record what I was seeing. Mm rather than having any kind of um, uh, artistic dream or anything. But I think I really enjoyed drawing as well, but always felt quite limited. And then I remember uh, my art teacher was running a, a photography class and it was the old Russian Zenit 12 cameras, you know, just like a proper block of metal. Okay. And, um, and I, I remember, still remember it clear as anything, like going out into the, playground in the school and looking through the camera and immediately thinking oh I can I can make things look how I want them to look whereas if I was drawing it you know I was okay to a point but limited creatively right. didn't have that extra bit but and I actually remember thinking like I think I could be quite good at this um... and then yeah and that was kind of like the beginning of photography and I got into printing and uh, developing and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the, the move away from press work was more, I'd done it for 10 years mm. and um, it's kind of two things really. One, I was in my late twenties and I thought, well, actually, if you want to make a go of this, you better get your finger out because uh, you know, I'm my late forties now, so the when I look at the people that are kind of already well established now that are doing my job, they're in their early twenties. Mm. So I was like, "Well, you better get on with it." Uh, and partly, I'd just become really jaded with press work. You know, I was doing things that I didn't agree with morally, mm -hmm. um, and the catalyst really was a. Um, Aberdeen's the kind of centre of the oil world in, in Europe, I guess. And um, there had been a helicopter crash um, from one of the helicopters coming back from the rigs. And um, so I, I got sent out to, to photograph the, the wreckage coming back on one of the ships into the harbour. And I'd been there for 24 hours and I, you know, basically everybody died on that, that helicopter. And um, I got back home and I just burst into tears. And I just thought, God, I just don't want to do this anymore. 
Yeah. And uh, so that was that was the kind of the kick that I I knew I needed to have, but actually it was just like a. Um, but in saying that, is um, you know as lovely as wildlife filming is, and uh, you know if you're the practical side of things where you're you're on a wage, it's like. Well, like say goodbye to that. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, and ultimately, these—I think you know—if you take that leap and you work at it, then it does work out. But there's still that kind of well, bit of trepidation in leaving a yeah, in leaving a salary, but um, and not a quick process either. No. You know, there's very few people within the wildlife filming industry that like appear and then suddenly they're at where they want to be. In terms Absolutely. of their career, <laughs> yeah. so there's a there's a lot of rejection and a lot of no, you know, we're not going to employ you for this, and um, yeah, so it's a it's a longer game, which is again harder when you're already late in in starting. Yeah, yeah. but it sounds to me like you went back to your original um, imprint, your original uh, source, your original you, is what it sounds like to me. Yeah, and it. And it feels like it's kind of taken me this long to go full circle back to that uh, uh, kind of feeling of connectedness, I suppose, where where I'm happy to not be filming and shooting the whole time where I can actually just sit and, you know, have my hands on the on the ground and just be there. And um, maybe that comes when you've been kind of happy with your career and you feel less pressure to be uh pushing the whole time but um yeah I think just learning to just see and and be there I think it's like it's it's there in all of us but I think the the opportunity to to be able to do that and to get there really feels a lot harder for people than than it than it should be yeah, yeah. Like there's nothing wrong with going and sitting on a cliff for an hour because you want to exactly. for no particular reason. Like who it's cares? How we, <laughs> it's how human beings naturally are. Mm, yeah. It's how we naturally are. And what I'm hearing as you're speaking is there's a deep integration there in your practice, deep integration in your um all the streams of your life. Yeah, that enable that. Yeah. Yeah. Hope so. Thanks so much for joining me. Raymond. My pleasure. Yeah, and I'll, I'll put all of the information in the show notes, but just quickly tell us where people can find more of your work or all of your work that's online. Uh, so I do have a website, but it's uh, like probably 90% of the websites in the world. It's not been updated for about two years. So okay. Uh, so people can see some, I guess, some older work there for some of the, the books that I've worked on. Uh, that's just RaymondDesant.com. Uh, more up-to-date work is um, on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And um, I do a, a monthly wildlife blog um, on Orkney.com as well, um, okay. which is a... Uh, it used to be about um, how to take pictures. Now it's more about um, just being out in the wild and... Um, my experience of being there and, and some of the pictures. So, um, perfect. Uh, yeah, there's about a three year archive of that stuff if people really wanted to. Uh, oh, excellent. Do that. <laughs> That's great. I'll put those links up. Uh, 
Thank you. I'm just going to switch our recording off.